Good morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Ellie Holmquist. Um, I've been going to restoration for about five years now. Um, so just a quick little story. Um, I have been writing most of my life, like since I learned what letters were, I've been writing. Um, and I even went to school for it. And then about 10 years ago, I stopped. And um, I don't know why, but um, likewise, I also kind of stopped talking to God. I started small talking with God, which I'm sure he likes about as much as I do. Um, <laughs> and so about two years ago, things got pretty, pretty hard. I went through a lot of hard stuff. And I think sometimes um, we go through hard things in to be able to return to our art. Um, sometimes hard times strike creativity. Um, I think likewise, it brings us back to God too. Um, but the good news is that you don't have to hit rock bottom to start talking to God again, um, which is kind of what I did. And I don't know why, but um, yeah, don't small talk to God. Um, return to him and actually start having conversations. It's, it seems really hard, but it's definitely worth it. So um, I started writing poetry again about two years ago. And then Matthew and Rob asked me to write a poem. And I thought, you don't know that I write poetry. So, um, so I thought I better do it. Um, so this is a poem I wrote about renewing, called Renewing My Spirit. I settled down with my tea and thoughts after everyone's gone to bed. Here we are, just like every year, with Christmas just ahead. Under my tree are perfectly wrapped gifts to enhance the anticipation for a season which at one point in my life was cause for celebration. But now in the quiet, in my deepest parts, lingering and wearying in my heart of hearts, are the things which I've lost and the ones who don't call. What is it I've been waiting for all this time after all? Be blessed and believe in his promises to complete, but the truth is, I sit here and all I feel is defeat. The winter draws me inward and I pull my blanket near and wonder when this holiday became such a hard time of year. It feels as though my, my, my fears and hurts are magnified within, like how my heart, which broken once, was then broken once again. My mother told me long ago, when my faith is weak, break the silence between you and God and ask to hear him speak. So I take a moment and close my eyes and try my best to pray. It's been so long since I talked to God, I'm not sure what to say. Restore my spirit, renew my joy, and teach me to pray again. And simply and quietly, I whisper quite softly in all these things, amen. Now sitting there alone in my living room, I looked to the window to see. It was snowing, beautifully snowing, my weak faith growing. Something was changing in me. No booming voice, no audible words, but a promise in my heart. The God I'd grown away from was giving me a new start. I went to the window to see the whirl of snowflakes dancing free, a masterful painting of God's great work created just for me. A simple thing to pray again and trust that he will hear, to ask that God be stronger than our hurts and bigger than our fears. Advent is the arrival of his pr the promises he's made. 
but often in a time to wait, our faith begins to fade. Believe it is our Father's plan to restore and celebrate. And know today, dear church, my church, God's promises are worth the wait. Wow. That was beautiful, Ellie. You know, Advent is this time of year where we like to do all the fun waiting, you know, where we like to talk about the waiting for the presence, whether you don't even have to be a kid. I was just told two weeks ago, wow, you're just a big kid, aren't you? And I'm like, yep, I am, totally. But I love the waiting in the right ways. And we so often focus on those simple waitings, those joyful waitings, and we, fig- we forget that there's a deeper waiting. Ellie tapped into the deeper waiting of Advent. It's the waiting through a painful relationship. It's the waiting when you're not sure if your finances from here to here are going to make it. It's the waiting for a loved one's health. It's the waiting part of Advent, which isn't the shepherd shepherds coming and bowing before Jesus. It's the waiting of Herod's cry to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Advent is complex. But if we can engage the waiting, I believe that something beautiful happens in it. If we can if we can do it in the right way. And so today, that's what we look at. We look at John the Baptist. It's in Matthew chapter 3. And we see how John the Baptist is this prime example of Advent. It's not something we normally would turn to, but yet over and over in all the ancient uh, Advent readings, his name comes up, his stories come up. And John is this all-in, black or white type of figure. It makes us a little uncomfortable because he tells it like it is, even when we don't want to hear it. He says things like, there are big changes ahead, judgment and grace, and I'm preparing the way for the Lord. And the temptation for us is that we skip over John. We look to Jesus, because he is the softer, sweeter, more pastoral side of Advent, especially if we can shrink him down into an infant size. We want to go to the more pain-free, judgment-free part of Advent and skip over the more complex and deeper side of Advent. So I think John tells us what we can do while we wait. It's in Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare, for the, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And we're going to stop there for a moment because if you grew up in the first century, no matter if you were religious or not, Jew nor Gentile, the scripture, what we call the Old Testament, was the only book used for education. The world and their life was centered around it and ordered by it. And so to illustrate what point I'm making, um, I've got some show and song clips that maybe you've known. Don't worry, I went through like 50 years of history, not, not in year to year. 
Um, I have other things to do than that. But uh, if you know the tune, you can, you can just raise your hand and shout it out, and uh, you know maybe there'll be mints for prizes later. So uh, here's the first one. What was that? There we go. Excellent. Yeah, this one goes back like to the 1960s. It's beautiful. All right, we're gonna go up a decade. Yeah, do you know which one? Right, New Hope. The main theme of A New Hope, which when I first saw, you can, when I, when I first saw this one, I'm like, do you know what they screwed up? They put episode four. It's episode one. They're, they're fools. Then I realized, oh, man. Yeah. So we'll just, we'll just continue. We'll go on to the next decade. Ooh, nice work. I think I heard that from someone that wasn't born in the 80s, too. Nice job. I won't dance up here. Yes, I'm a believer. Anyone know what two decades or artists this is from? Not, it is, it is, it is Smash Mouth. It's not the monkeys. Neil Diamond, the classics. Yeah. All right, we're going to move up a couple decades. Oh, I thought that was a young man. I'm like, well, that was impressive, but nice job. Yes. What was that? Lego Movie 2, do you remember the name of the song? What's it called? No, you're close, it will. And I, you can thank all of me later for it, because by five o'clock you're gonna be like, this song is totally stuck in my head. Catchy song, Catchy song. that's right. Yeah, there you go, see? And just like, the whole point to that was, just like in this room, we could name those things within even just a measure of, of music notes, that when the writers of the Bible were putting stuff together, life was so permeated by the scripture that even someone who wasn't religious, even someone who was far from God, when they heard a reference to the wilderness, they would immediately know some things. They made allusions that they knew not everyone was going to catch, but that someone would know about. And so they would catch them just as quickly. For example, when it says, that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, or maybe in your translation, it says in the desert of Judea. That would have immediately brought them back to this place where, wait, John the Baptist, his parents were both in the priestly line, and John's story starts in the temple. But now when he starts his ministry, he's not at the temple, he's out in the wilderness. But people, when they go to be restored with God, they go to the temple, but now everyone is leaving, going from you know, inside to outside. They're going to the wilderness to be restored with God. So that's something that makes you go, hmm, CNC Music Factory, 1980s. Now, not only that, the wilderness would also evoke this image um, of not just the margin of symbolization, but the place of new beginnings. The wilderness is where God took his people out of the greatest civilization in history at the time, where they were slaves, 
out into the wilderness to experience a new beginning, freedom. This was also the place of testing where God's people tried and tested God and God tested them. And it was the place where God continued to speak to his people, either literally himself or through an angel or through the prophets to bring them back into relationship. As I think about what it would mean for us to go into the wilderness, I think about the word retreat. I think it's the first action we can take, the good things that we can do while we wait in Advent, because none of us really love to wait. But if we retreat, it's this idea of walking away from the daily grind. Going to a retreat center is where we get away from the daily distractions of life. We, we plug in our phone, but we're actually the ones, if we walk away from it, where we're recharged. This is the place where people go to hear God speak, because so often we're running so quickly. And it doesn't have to be a retreat center. We can go on a walk in the woods, and we can hear from God. We can, we can find a chair in our home where, there is, where we make the distractions go away, and we can hear from God. As we think about what it means to prepare for Christmas, most of us go to decorating the tree, buying the gifts, preparing the food. And if we do think about it spiritually, it's probably more like with a nativity scene or baby Jesus, maybe even like the shepherds and the drummer boy. But John the Baptist calls us to a different kind of preparation, a harder preparation, a preparation that requires us to walk away from things that are good to a place that is best. It's to stop, it's to listen, and to prepare the way for the Lord. So what does it mean for you to retreat in your life, real life, actual life, right now, on December 8th, right? 8th. For me, it's often after Christmas. I have some big things leading up to Christmas. You're all involved in most of them, but... It's those days right after Christmas where I can take just one day in my journal, in my Bible, and I can retreat and I can listen. What did God say? What is God saying? What will God say? How will you do it? John the Baptist continues in verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So in the Gospels, if you look carefully, you'll see that very few descriptions of people are listed in it. So the times that it actually is listed, when someone's clothes are described, there's a clear purpose in why. It's usually to mark what the person is doing, a vocation of them, their calling, it, a place in the story, a function, if you will. And so Matthew indicates that John had this unique clothing. didn't necessarily pertain to his socioeconomic status. It is in contrast to the religious leaders who wear the long, flowing robes that love to be seen. John is wearing the very, very uh, plain 
robes or uniform, if you will, of a prophet. The prophet Elijah, actually in 2 Kings 1, had the very similar garment. In 2 Kings 1, it says that he had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. This was Elijah, the Tishbite. This is his clothes made him look like, John's clothes made him look like the prophet Elijah. But John's words made him sound like the prophets Isaiah and Malachi. Unique thing about Isaiah and Malachi, they were from two different times, but they both were talking about a new exodus. Like the people were in exile, but God was going to bring a new exodus. Just like the people were trapped in Egypt, trapped, I mean they sort of could leave before the whole Moses thing, but they didn't want to leave because they had food, they had water, they had work, they had economic security, and they were willing to become enslaved to that work because everything was provided for them. I mean, I know I'm Captain Obvious, but doesn't Egypt sound a lot like the United States? And there's a new exodus. Now the people are in exile for a different reason, and God is still calling out to them. He's calling out to them through the prophets Isaiah, the prophets Malachi, the prophet Ezekiel, and he's saying there's a new exodus. God is going to come once again, not just to bring you back to a land, but to bring you back into relationship with me. Now, Isaiah, or not Isaiah, we already talked about them. Elijah, he's this radical prophet. He does some crazy stuff. He is the main opposition, the foil to this evil king that had amazing popularity ratings, Ahab. He has a wife named Jezebel. We make some jokes about Jezebel even to this day. But he is in contrast to Ahab, just like John the Baptist is in contrast to Herod. Herod speaks, or John the Baptist speaks against the King Herod and gets ended up getting thrown in prison. Now, here's the other cool thing, because I'm just the king of connections today. So Elijah, John the Baptist, Elijah's name means the Lord is God, which might sound redundant, but you know, in a time where they were following lots of gods, the Lord is God, makes a big statement. And he precedes an even greater prophet, Elisha. Anyone know what his name means? The Lord is salvation. Elisha. Huh. John the Baptist, his name means God is gracious, or God, Jehovah is a gracious giver. And he precedes Jesus, who in Hebrew is Yeshua, or Joshua, the Lord is salvation, or Jehovah is salvation. We, if we were steeped, if the Bible was our only book of education, we would catch all of those references just like that. So in just these first few phrases, the writer wants us to connect all of those pieces and the fact of where John the Baptist is baptizing. In, in John's gospel, it says that John the baptizer is baptizing on the other side of the Jordan. Now, that might sound like, what? Why does that matter? Like the Jordan River, it doesn't matter which side it does. Oh, it does. Because the river, the Jordan River, is not just this body of water, it is not just this divider between the promised land and the desert. On the other side of the Jordan is the place where God's people 
walked over into the promised land. It's the place where Abraham went from Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, where Babylonia was, where the Tower of Babel was, where everything in the ancient world that said, this is what it means to be rebelling from God. Abraham crosses over, enters from east to west on the other side of the Jordan, and starts a new beginning. Abraham's descendants, 400 years later, and 40, end up crossing over through the Jordan and into the promised land. John the Baptist goes to that place where the new beginnings were and calls the people to a new exodus. He's inviting them to a new beginning, to a new promised land with a new kingdom and a new king. And we are invited to confess into that. It's really the second action that we can take as we wait. It's not just to retreat, it's also to confess. Sometimes a confession is just a statement of honesty. I was here, and now I'm here. Or I used to think this about God, but now I believe this about God. That is what John is inviting the people to, and it's saying, like, this is where my life was going, now my life is going this way. And it's good that I'm doing that because God's kingdom is going that way and his king is going to go that way and I want to be going with God's king, not against God's king. That is the call of all the prophets through all time. It's John the Baptist's call. The question that Isaiah asked, that Elijah asked, that John asks is, will you hear this call? And by hear, it doesn't mean like, I heard what you were saying. It means I hear what you're saying, and I will respond to what you're saying. Now think about our world today. I mean, our world today tells us that we should all be more tolerant of everyone. In fact, tolerance is like one of our chief virtues, and we are unbelievably intolerant of anyone who dares to tell us that we need to change. If you add to that that most of us are very stubborn, and basically resist accepting responsibility to the bitter end. And we want to put the blame on someone or something else, and then we just think we're a victim to our lives. In fact, when I think about this, it brings me back to uh, the story of Moses again and his brother Aaron. Now, Moses goes up on a mountain. It's in Exodus 32, if you're like, I've not, I don't know this story. So Moses goes up on this mountain, and he's going to hear from God, receive commandments and instruction God writes them on these two stone tablets. But he's there for 40 days. 40 days maybe literally, 40 days maybe like something new is in him, something old is dying in him, something new is being born. Could be that. But what do the people say? They say to Aaron, who's left in charge, Aaron, you need to make us gods to lead us from this place. Because that guy Moses, we don't know what happened to him. So we should go. Yeah, it's there. I mean, they say fellow, but really, it's this guy Moses. We don't know what's happened to him. And so Aaron says, why don't you give me all the gold jewelry that you, your kids, your wives, they all have. And they all brought it, and he took all that gold, he put it in a fire, and then it says, very carefully, he made an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. But God was up on the mountain with Moses, or more correctly, Moses was up on the mountain with God. God told him, oh, the people, your people, they're sinning. They are rebelling against me. You need, like, and Moses is like, oh, I got to go down. So he goes down, 
He gets quite angry, throws down the stone tablets, and um, then he goes to his brother Aaron and says, like, what did the people do to you? What did they make you do to make you lead them into such great sin? And wouldn't it have been appropriate, as we're talking about what good we can do while we wait, to confess that Aaron would have said, Moses, go tell God I have sinned. I'm the one that's to blame. Put the responsibility on me. Don't don't blame the people. That's not exactly what he does. Instead, he tries to duck any personal guilt or responsibility, and he has this super lame excuse that is just amazing. Don't be angry with me, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. Exodus 32, 24. They brought me their gold, and all I did was toss it in the fire, and then this calf came out. One of my favorite parts of the Bible. It's the fire's fault. I didn't do it. The fire's to blame. That's just the old story. Like, we don't have that in our life. Or, where does your pride tempt you to hide instead of confess? See, part of our culture argues that there's really even not even sin. Like it's just a thing that religious people do to manipulate others. In fact, like way back in, in the six, like 1959 and 1981, uh, these two Bible scholars decided that they should ca- caricature a rewriting of the, like satirize a rewriting of the general prayer of confession from the old book of common prayer. And they did it like this. If you are going to confess, confess this way. Benevolent and easygoing, Father, we've occasionally been guilty of errors in judgment. We've lived under the deprivations of heredity and disadvantages of our environment. We've sometimes failed to act in accordance with common sense. We've done the best we could with what we have. We've been careful to not ignore the common standards of decency, and we're glad to think that we're fairly normal. O Lord, deal lightly with our infrequent lapses in judgment. Be sweet to those who admit they are not perfect. According to your unlimited tolerances, which we have a right to expect from you, go easy on us, God. And grant us, like an indulgent parent, that maybe we may continue a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. I showed that to one of my friends, and uh, she said, like, I thought that was actually written in a book somewhere. And I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm, it was on two different books. But the point was satire. But how close do our prayers come to that? Instead, John the Baptist and the prophets call us to actually confess. Isaiah says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight and stop doing wrong. First John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Yet if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. And even James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other 
so that you may be healed. We confess our sin to God for forgiveness. James says we confess to each other for healing. See, repentance has to follow confession. We can retreat, we can confess, but then we need to repent. It's a change of heart, literally a confession of sin, a change of mind, what the word actually means, and a change of life, walking towards God instead of away from God. And if you're like, oh, I just don't know if I can do that, I think the last few verses gives us hope. In verse 7, it says, When he, John the Baptist, saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, are you poisonous son of snakes? Kind of a harsh title. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is ready to fall at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, the Sadducees and Pharisees were the religious leader of Jesus' day. The Pharisees were the law keepers and the promoters of tradition. The Sadducees made up the wealthy ruling class. Uh, I was always taught, like, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, so they were always sad, you see. So that might be how you can remember it. I'm sorry, two weeks in a row, groaners, but, you know, it's Christmas. So, but they knew something about snakes fleeing fires because the farmers then, even the farmers today, they would often burn the stubble of their fields at the end of the season in order to prepare it for the next season. And so as the fire went across the, the acres and across the fields, the, the ground would heat up and the, the snake dens would get hot. And so the snakes would come out of their den and start trying to scurry away from the fire, but often they wouldn't make it. They would be consumed in this fire. John the Baptist, in calling them the brood of vipers or these children of snakes, and Jesus later says it too, it's meant to shake them up thinking like, where are you getting this false sense of personal or national security? God's coming judgment is clear. And it's this clear warning that the people of Israel, that the nation of Israel, have failed to live up to their calling as God's people. But he also mentions that there is an escape from that judgment. When we confess and repent, it's like we're the vipers fleeing in the right direction towards that baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And when God forgives sin, he removes the judgment. When God forgives sin, he removes the judgment. There may still be consequences, but God is gracious. He removes the judgment. There's no condemnation for those who repent, who confess and repent and receive that forgiveness. And that's good news, but John humbly confesses that he's not the one to give that gift of salvation or the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather the useful wheat 
into the barn and burn the useless chaff in that fire. What I think he's saying is the final act we can take is to submit to Jesus. We can submit to Jesus. He is the one that's more powerful. And think about it. John is actually saying by his question that the crowds and the religious leaders, the ones who started off well-meaning but turned like with their greed, their jealousy, their hypocrisy, turned into these awful people who end up crucifying Jesus, even them, John does not push away. He says, maybe sarcastically, but he says, who who warned you to flee from the coming judgment? What if we were there and we could actually ask John, John, what's the right answer? It was God. God warned us to flee from the coming judgment. If Jesus is true and that no one can come to him unless God the Father draws them, What John is saying is, even you religious leaders, even you who so quickly go to your religion or your heredity to say that we have no need for repentance, even you can say, God is drawing me to repent. God is drawing me to confess that I cannot save myself, that I need someone greater to heal my life. In our age of polarization, let's be honest, that goes way beyond politics. We're so quick to put people on one side and us on the other. I think it's so powerful that John the Baptist, who is this black and white, all-in, radical type of figure, says, who warned you to flee from the coming judgment? Which could have easily been, who warned you to flee from the coming judgment? An invitation. It's not a scathing reprimand. It is a radical invitation to people that he vehemently, possibly vehemently disagreed with. That, friends, is the grace of God. Even in the midst of judgment, we have to see that in Advent, there is grace, there is good anticipation, but there is also that hint of judgment. That Jesus isn't just coming as a baby. He's coming as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming to bring an account that doesn't have to scare us, but does possibly need to wake us up. That's what it means to submit. That Jesus is the one that prepares the way. I can't prepare the way, you can't prepare the way, we cannot do it on our own and in our own strength. The disciples over and over, they tried to do that. They just got in Jesus' way more than that they followed in his way. Jesus has to be out in front. He has to be the one blazing the trail. Can we, like John, confess someone is coming greater who's, I'm not worthy to carry his transportation. But I can follow in his way. I think we're helpless until Jesus comes. We're like an eight-year-old kid in Minnesota who walks home with his friend as the snow starts to fall 
They might even leave school, you know, early because of, you know, there's one to two inches of snow falling every hour, which quickly turns to three to five inches of snow falling every hour. And by the dad, time the dad gets home from work, barely, like there is two or three feet of snow in the two blocks separating his friend's house from his house. And the kid is stuck. He can't get home. What does he do? His dad, who can't drive there, grabs a shovel and his snow pants and his snowsuit and walks and trudges through the snow and creates a path. And the father is not just a teacher, because if he was truly a teacher, he would knock on the door, tell his son to strap on all his shoes, hand his son a shovel and say, okay, this is how you prepare the way for yourself. And can you imagine an eight-year-old kid trying to shovel his way out of two and a half feet of snow? You know, well, I remember when I was your age and the snow came up to here as it's up to here on the kid who comes up to here. You know, maybe that picture doesn't make sense. He's not just a teacher. Nor is he like, oh, I'll do it. I'll be your surrogate. I'll prepare the way. I'll make the way. I'll go home and you can just stay here. No, that's not going to restore the relationship. That's not how we prepare the way. How Jesus prepares the way is he's like that good father who shovels the snow out of the way and so that the little, little child can walk through. Granted, it's difficult. Jesus doesn't promise us this smooth path, the harmless and happy life, but it is good. It is worth it. It does lead to eternity. How do you need to retreat? How do you need to confess? How do you need to repent? And how do you need to submit? See, Advent is this opportunity and invitation to experience God's fullness and wholeness. His peace that isn't just this simple God bless you, but a peace that restores everything back into relationship in its fullest way, where we leave behind our own way and we follow our new leader into a new kingdom, into a new promised land that has nothing to do with national or personal security, but has everything to do with an eternal relationship with God. We just pause and listen to the Holy Spirit for a moment as the worship team comes up as we consider what it might mean to respond to this good that we can do while we wait. Father God, like Ellie poetically said, Advent is a time for new beginnings, for renewal of mind, body, of relationships, of spirit. God, there are some who need a new beginning with their health. God, they've received news from the doctor that if things don't change, there's destruction ahead. 
they need a new beginning, would you let them know that you are with them and you're the good doctor who brings us healing? There are some, God, who need a renewal, a new beginning in their finances. Like Tian so just practically put, oh God, is there some other way? In this time where it's so easy to overspend, God, not just financially, but overspend our time, overspend in our relationships, overspend in our work, in finishing the year, would you remind us that you are the God who gives us limits and they are good? There are some, God, who need a new beginning with you. They know they've been small-talking with you for too long, and they don't want something big to happen in their life where they have to come running back, God. We want to be able to hear the nudge of your voice and just take a few steps in your direction. God, we know that you will meet us there. You say that anyone who seeks me with all their heart will find me. And so, God, we turn to you. I pray for those who are too tired to run to you right now, who are too scared because they haven't spoken enough words to make a paragraph and they're not sure what to do. I pray that they could just turn to you and take a step and give a sentence and know that you will meet them in that place with their little offering that's brought in the fullness, in the anticipation with all of who they are. God, see us, speak to us.